Welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we will be discussing thinking differently and making the impossible possible. I'm delighted to welcome Greg Gal, co-founder of SolveNext and the Think Wrong methodology. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, Susie. It's great to be with you. Thanks for accepting. It's great to have you on the show. Greg, you are a big believer in thinking differently or thinking wrong, in fact, as opposed to thinking right, but you can tell us more about that later. As the author of the book, Think Wrong, you've got over 30 years experience thinking wrong about leadership, about decision-making, about planning, about culture. This is, of course, where we met when you came to work your magic and bring this approach to Ebus, which we'll come to later as well. But your approach to addressing culture begins with our brains, which for me is a great but a complex place to start. And you're on a quest to use these different neural patterns to solve problems and make the impossible possible. That's a vast subject. But before we delve into thinking wrong, so to speak, can you tell us a little bit more about Solve Next and the story of how that company came about and how it's linked to your methodology? Sure. Yeah, the uh, Solve Next, uh, its origins really are a business that we had before. All these things are sort of one business begets another business. And so we, for the, the first 10 years in 2000, 2010, we were doing a lot of work with leadership teams really on brand, which is kind of, you know, sort All of right. space okay. that I came from. And, and the way that I look at a brand is it's how you're understood in the minds of the people who matter most to you. Right. So that's, yeah. brand is, like, it's not something that's, you know, the logo on a tin. It, it's mm. actually what exists in somebody's mind and how they think about you. Yeah. And that gets shaped by both the expectations that we create, sort of the promises that we make out loud, and then how we show up and deliver against those. So we we used a lot of this methodology in working with leadership teams to get them to become clear about how did they want to be understood in the world, and then what did they need to do to go about building that understanding. Right. And w- what we found over those ten years is we really we really liked doing that work, but it wasn't specific to brand. It, it actually applied to uh, many different problem and challenge spaces in organizations. So we. We closed the business that was doing that work down. It was called Creative Capital, and we closed that okay. business down, and we launched Solve Next um, with the idea of first helping organizations disrupt themselves. How could we help mm-hmm. them or overcome, as you mentioned, the both the neuro, neurological, the sort of um, mm-hmm. the biological barriers that exist in terms of conceiving of and doing new things. And the cultural barriers that result from the fact that our minds work that way and the collections of minds work that way. Mm. So we really made a tough decision in a way because it was get, you know, close this successful business down, suddenly you have no revenue and launch an entirely new business based on the foundation of what we had built, but with a with really a different set of clients and 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 thinking more broadly about the kinds of problems and challenges that we mm. take on. And we've learned since 2012 when we when we launched Solve Next, we've learned quite a few things along the way. I can imagine. Uh, of course, you know, everything that we had thought, you know, we were doing, had it has evolved significantly. As you have mentioned, we wrote the book, Think Wrong, to really capture and codify the approach that we were taking and to provide a handbook to other people who wanted mm-hmm. to do that work. Our clients and folks who we trained in the methodology really were excited about it, but they kept asking us this question of, well, this is great, we, we're coming up with fantastic ideas. We're really arriving at solution mm. hypotheses that mm. we hadn't been able to arrive at before. But what's next? Like, what do, what do we do with that? How how do we move forward? I think for about four four years we treated that as a a rhetorical question, and then we figured <laughs> out that it wasn't a rhetorical question. It was a it was a real question and a and a and a kind of cry for help. So what we've evolved into is an organization that actually helps our clients build systems of innovation. And the think wrong methodology is one of the tools in the platform that that system operates on top of. It's really useful for disrupting our own thinking or overcoming our own biases and orthodoxies and beliefs, but it's not sufficient to actually get a new idea to market, right? You actually need exactly. to have some yeah. other systems in place. And so Solve Next says has evolved over time <laughs> to be a company that really specializes in helping individuals who want to participate in this kind of work and helping organizations that want to build systems of innovation to do that. Because one of my questions was was going to be, 
once you've disrupted the way you think and you've done that with a group, so there's some sort of scaling there in terms of the experience, but how do we industrialize it then into sort of ways of being and doing in an organization? Because, you know, you walk out of that room, fired up, thinking differently with yeah. great new ideas that have come out of a very short space of time. If you see how much time we spend trying to plan right. um, <laughs> in organizations. So then, you know, how do, and you've partially answered my question, but it's become a part of a toolbox to, to create innovation systems. But what we see the most is idea to proof of concept is fun. It's great. You know, we're thinking wrong and we're enjoying thinking wrong. And then it's that big, how do you industrialize it? How do you go back to the rest of the organization and get them yeah. to not necessarily think like you, but even accept the idea? Yeah, that's a complex question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of, of things. First of all, establishing shared language, common frameworks, a shared toolkit, building up some skills and competency that's required in an organization, that's absolutely essential. So you have to you have to think about how do we actually equip mm. an organization to do this work? So when you talk about industrializing it or scaling it up, yeah. it's like you, you can't actually get to that place if you haven't laid that foundation of how do we talk about this? Mm. How do we think about it? How do we organize our action around it? What tools do we have to take action with and what skills are re- actually required? Add now to that, that you actually need to do that at three major layers of the organization. You need mm. to do it. What a lot of organizations do is they they invest a lot of energy and effort on equipping their entrepreneurs, those yeah. innovators that, yeah. that are inside of the organization, getting them very excited about doing <laughs> this work. But then they don't actually train the management level of the organization how mm. to manage and provide oversight over a discovery-driven development process. Yeah. So those excited teams find that they don't get adequate support for managers and managers actually often try to stop them from doing what they're doing because most of their skills are around efficiency and yeah. optimization, making things run well and, and to minimize disruption. So you've got a team of people who are being equipped to disrupt and a team of managers whose job is to stop disruption. So they become these opposing forces. Now add on top of that another layer and that's the executive layer. So, yeah. and executives don't have a good set of frameworks and, and tools for providing governance, the highest level of oversight for making decisions about what moves forward, what doesn't move forward, what gets merged, what gets slowed down, what gets spun out. How do we actually fund things? What's the criteria that we use for making these decisions? That often doesn't exist. Mm. Um, more often than not, it doesn't exist. So, we're lacking the foundation. And then, then if you think about this as a technology stack, the people layer at the top, yeah. the people layer doesn't have the skills that they need to do the work. And so you mm-hmm. need to really build the, that level of competency. That middle layer then is the process. So we have the people, the process, and then that platform that I was mm. talking about, content and tools. But that process, which is, do we have a defined process or roadmap or way in which something proceeds from a goal (laughs) Mm. to a strategy, to a set of possible solutions that are connected to real and validated problems and pains and opportunities. And then do we have a way of kind of funding and moving those things through? And again, in most organizations, the answer is no, (laughs) you know, that they don't, that doesn't exist. Mm. So, so that needs to exist in order to industrialize or to scale this. All of those represent significant challenges to organizations in terms of being able to first establish that shared language and Mm. then to make sure that we have alignment all the way through from executives to managers to our teams. And Mm. I think you've probably witnessed some in in organizations what it it looks like when you have a very excited uh, set of teammates, but you're not getting the support you need from above to Mm. actually execute successfully. If I take those three layers, and I think that's just something you could probably cut and paste onto most organizations in terms of the way it works. You've got excited yeah. communities trying to push it forward, and then you've got sort of higher levels being a little bit more reticent or even squashing it all together. Yeah. What's the biggest challenge you see at each of those levels in terms of getting them ready for scaling? Yeah. At the executive level, it's that there's a need to have a very clear criteria for making your decisions. It doesn't have to be complex, but it needs to be clear. It needs to be mm. agreed. And we have, we have a criteria that we, we share with our clients called the super seven. And it's seven questions that need to be asked 
all the way through the development process. And I, I could go into them in depth if you want, but I won't, I won't yet because it takes a little time. Yeah. But there's this establishing a clear criteria for, for sort of checking to make sure that we're working on the things we should be working on. Organizing your innovation efforts and initiatives into portfolios mm. and running them like portfolios giving the executives the tools to actually run those portfolios of innovation or acquiring them or building them yourself. That's really important. So those things are, are missing. So the, like, what's our criteria? What's our portfolio look like? What's the funding mechanism that we should be using? Because it's quite different than the funding mechanism for established operations yeah. the existing business. Those things are really big barriers. I think for managers, it tends to be most managers are not adept at discovery-driven development or, you know, agile mm. ma uh, management mm -hmm. methods. And managing when there are high degrees of uncertainty and many unknowns, it's a different mindset and it's a different skill set. And most organizations have not trained their people to do that. They're there to, managers are there to, like, keep the trains running on time, yeah. Not, yeah. not to imagine a train that doesn't even run on tracks, and, <laughs> but, but being uncertain about whether it should or could or would. That's just a different skill set. So there's just this gap. I think there's often a, a management gap and we can find good people to fill that void who come out of agile, who have a background in scrum and, and, and mm. understand kind of those, those techniques because they really do apply here. It's not as though there aren't proven reservoirs of talented people who know how to do that work. It's just, like I said, it hasn't been broadly adopted and applied across organizations. Like you won't find a scrum master in an HR department typically. No. <laughs> but HR does need to be doing innovation. <laughs> so, And then at the staff level, there's a couple of interesting things. One is we, we see most teams don't spend adequate time validating the pains and the problems and sizing those so that they're working on the right things and ensuring that those things actually align back to the goals and the strategies of their organizations. So people get excited about a technology or they get excited about an idea that they have, but they haven't proven that there's actually need and they haven't checked to see that that thing fits within the strategic objectives of the organization. So yeah. they're going to meet a lot of resistance. Yeah, uh, and they're just and shoehorning processes into and people into a tool. Yeah. And they could be building something that they're super excited about. And then they discover there is actually no real market for it, you know, yeah. and that could even be an internal solution that there's not a market for this new HR policy. We, we mm. thought I was excited about what it would be look like to have, you know, star teams instead of a hierarchical structure. And so yeah. I've implemented star teams and nobody showed up. It's like, yeah, because <laughs> nobody was asking or needing star teams. Right. So I think that's where, you know, where we see teams often kind of failed to hit the mark. And if you can't, as a team member, if you don't know what the criteria is that the executive is using, <laughs> no, no. then you can't actually provide them with the results, the discovery, mm -hmm. the data that says we should keep going on this because I don't know how I'm, I don't know how it's being measured or decided whether this thing should be moving forward or not. So you see teams really struggle with that also. Yeah, you get quite a lot of standalone initiatives, don't you? Like sort of what I call satellite structures where innovation is held and done quite quickly and quite well because it's in a small space yeah. that has different processes and almost a different culture. We'll, we'll come back to that. But can you just walk us through the Super 7 a little bit? Sure. So the Super 7, the first question is, is there strategic fit, right? So if I'm an executive and I'm looking at a team has come to me with an initiative, I, the first question I have to ask is, is there strategic fit? Meaning, does it actually align with uh, stated goals and strategies that we're employing as an organization, mm. right? So that's the first question. It seems obvious, but <laughs> in many organizations, they have never clearly articulated or communicated either their goals or their strategies, and they don't always make it down to the team. So we need, we need to ask that. It needs to be being asked at the executive level, at the management level, and at the at the team level. The next question is, is there portfolio fit? Because the answer might be yes, there's strategic fit, but we might actually already have five things going on in our portfolio that are trying to accomplish this. So do we really need one more, mm. right? Mm. Do we really need one more electric flying taxi in our portfolio? <laughs> for example. <laughs> of electric flying taxis, for example. Because, you know, that's an exciting thing and you can see lots of teams getting excited about it, but you probably, you don't need to be overweighted in that in your portfolio. Yeah. So you need to ask, is there a portfolio fit? There's another version of, is there a portfolio fit, which is I'm a member of the sales organization 
And we're super excited about something that actually belongs in the legal and compliance side of the organization. It doesn't belong in our portfolio. So we need to actually share this idea and opportunity with somebody in legal and compliance and hope that they will embrace it and move it forward. But it's not, but we don't have permission to do it within our portfolio. So that's the that second question. So is there strategic fit? Is there portfolio fit? Once we've said yes to both of those things, the next question is, is it wanted? And that that's the need question. That's the thing I was just getting at where I said people don't often validate whether or not there's a real problem or pain or friction or tension that exists that says, yes, there's there's actually pent up appetite or desire or need for this thing. So we mm-hmm. need to validate if it's wanted. And, and you need to be able to demonstrate to me, not just, oh, I think it's wanted because I told three people and they said, that yeah. sounded great. <laughs> it was, we've done the discovery work that we needed to do in order to validate the fact that there is a real need for this, or there's an opportunity to, that to transform the way that people experience this thing mm-hmm. that would be transformed. You know, that would be transformative. That would be, that would be a big step change that would be highly valued by people. So is it wanted that after, is it wanted? So that's question number three. And they, these do go in sequence. If there's not mm-hmm. strategic fit, mm-hmm. don't go, don't proceed. If there's not portfolio mm-hmm. fit, don't proceed. If it's not wanted, don't proceed. Don't spend any capital on exploring this further. Mm-hmm. The next one, is it doable? And is it doable is both a question of, is it technically possible, but also is it culturally possible? Is it legally possible? Is it, you know, mm-hmm. there are lots of reasons why things can't be done that don't have to do with technology, right? They yeah, have to do, absolutely. They have to do with other, you know, forms of resistance or, or um, refusal. Which I would say um, 80% of the resistance was. <laughs> absolutely. Right. <laughs> absolutely. So, so is it doable? You know, are we confident enough to, that we can do this to, to move forward? And I, I give an example of this one, which is we had a client that was working on, it's a pet food company and they were, they were very excited about some technologies and, and how those technologies could be used in the health and well-being of people's pets. What we discovered in the process was that people weren't excited or sitting around waiting and wanting technology. What they really wanted was to be able to talk to their dogs (laughs) or cats. (laughs) So people wanted to be able to talk to their dogs or their cats. They wanted their dogs and cats to be able to talk with them. Now, is that doable? No, Hmm. not today. And, you know, we can't all be Dr. Doolittle, but what we did discover was there was a proxy for speech in terms of understanding the emotional state of an animal and its really? heart rate variability. Oh, wow. And okay. Heart rate variability is a really good indicator of the emotional state of human beings and animals. It turns yeah. out. And this technology was being used on very expensive racehorses because you make a huge investment in a racehorse. You want to understand its state it, of yeah. being. And wow. so one of the ways you do that is by measuring heart rate variability. So suddenly it was like, oh, we had we had reason to believe that it was doable, that we could actually use this technology that had been proven on racehorses and we could try it out on dogs and cats and use that as a substitute for language, right? Now we have a much better indicator of the emotional state and well-being. Is the pet in a state of excitement? Is it anxiety? Is it at rest? These things could all be revealed through heart rate variability. Interestingly, also highly correlated to the pet's guardian. (laughs) The company calls them guardians, not owners. But the pet's guardian's heart rate was highly correlated with the pet's heart rate. Mm. Which is about things like service dogs. It starts to make sense. It's like people calm down when they have this trained service animal uh, in their presence. It, It has that effect. So anyhow, that's a story around doability like is it doable okay we need to sort of look at and say is it possible then is it worth it is the question of will it produce value that makes it worth doing in lean there's actually three versions of these questions the first one uh, is around desirability and we mm-hmm. talk about is it wanted because it's not just is it desired it's actually is there a deep enough pain or friction or problem that says there's an opportunity to actually transform how this thing's being done that people will want to, will, will respond to. Yeah. Um, so we think about it a little bit more broadly in lean. We'll say, is it technically feasible? We mm-hmm. expand that to say, is it doable to, as we just discussed, to take okay. in these other, these others considerations. 
And then is it worth it? Isn't just, is it economically viable? Viable. Mm. Because okay. it's not just around viability. It's not just around, the, it, it, will it produce the you know euros or dollars? It's actually, is it going to pr- produce the kind of impact or value that we're seeking? Mm. And that's really important, especially if you're working in a domain where dollars or euros aren't the uh, most important currencies. Yeah. And the example of that would be, we do work with the Department of Defense. In the Department of Defense, you know, things cost a lot of money, but what they're really, the, the currency that's most important are human lives. Yeah, of course. And, mm. and, and, and peace and security sitting underneath that. So what dollars does it take to get to a level of peace and security and to, and to save and protect human lives is, is very important. I do work with a nonprofit in the human trafficking space. They're fighting human trafficking. Again, the currency there is how many exploited people did we protect yeah, from tra- being trafficked? So the, the currency that we weight most heavily there isn't dollars, it's yeah. it's lives. So when we say, is it worth it? You ought to be thinking about, you ought to have a discussion as leaders at executive level, what's the currency we're using to measure worth? And how do we prioritize that? I love that question. It takes it yeah. away from just pure profit because yeah. if when I look at inclusion and collaboration and the sort of whole well-being productivity part of the human experience, that takes on a whole different a whole different meaning, doesn't it? Currency then? A- absolutely. And again, I'd say if I'm you know an often overlooked or uh, poorly regarded part of an organization is HR, but it, you know organizations are made up of people, right? Yeah, and, if, and, and talent. And, <laughs> and if you're not caring for them and achieving those levels of inclusion, of diversity, of respect, of actually building and developing those individuals and sort of allowing them to fulfill their maximum potential, then your organization is going to underperform. So yes. the currency there is talented people, right? It's not, <laughs> it, you know, yeah, they cost money, but, you know, that that's not the number one priority in terms mm-hmm. of their what they're doing in their innovation. It's a consideration, mm-hmm. just like any other constraint, right? Yes. So is it worth it is the fifth question. Then the sixth question that we ask is, does it represent affordable loss? And what we mean by that is the work that needs to be done at this stage of development, if it turns out that we should not continue, or if it turns out that we're wrong in our hypothesis, can we afford the capital that we're going to have to invest to take that step, to get Mm -hmm. to that level of certainty? So does this represent affordable loss? is not about pushing the entire budget over to an innovation team. It's about saying, we're going to fund this next stage. And if we're wrong about our pain hypothesis or wrong about our solution hypothesis, are we okay with that? Well, can we survive it? Right? Yeah. Can we survive being wrong? An example of that, this is, this is one that's sort of publicly known. X Factory, which is part of Alphabet, also mm-hmm. known as Google, had a lighter than aircraft project going on, a dirigible project. They were really interested in airships. And yeah, there are a lot of different organizations looking at airships for different reasons, transport and delivery um, is sort of what they were looking at. They got to a place where they realized to build the first working prototype was going to cost them $200 million to get a full-scale working prototype. And for them, they had to say, you know, that does not represent affordable loss to us. Yeah. We can't afford to lose, mm-hmm. like be wrong about our hypothesis and have spent $200 million on a prototype. That scale of test in the U.S. Air Force, sure, you could do that, right? That's mm-hmm. affordable loss in the Air Force, but it's mm-hmm. not for Google, a publicly traded company. That's an example of where an organization has to say, okay, you know, we're, we think it's, you know, it's wanted, we think it's doable, we think it's worth it, but we actually can't afford to take mm-hmm. the next step. So we have to stop. But it's like, it's just out of our mm-hmm. realm of what's possible for us. And then the final question is around option value. And that is, is it creating option value for us as an organization? There's different kinds of option value, but this this ties back to sort of looking at a portfolio and thinking about, hey, we've got a portfolio of projects going on. When there's a great deal of uncertainty, what we want to do is actually have a number of potential solutions to the challenge, not just Mm -hmm. one, because if we're, if we just have one and we're wrong, then we're stuck, right? We want to, we want to have a number of potential um, solutions and uh, we want to have options of, can we do this smaller or can we do it larger? So there's a scale option. Can we do it faster or slower, right? Does it give us flexibility? Can we produce one thing with this? And then if something changes, can we produce something else with it? In manufacturing, you could imagine that, right? Mm. Can I use this? Can I use this line to make one kind of good? And then could I actually 
use everything we create done to create another good. So Basically, it gives us gives us some kind of flexibility option. The final option there is does it have exit value, right? Can we can we exit it and recapture some of the value that we spent on building it to this point? Mm-hmm. So that, those are the seven questions that we're actually we're asking from the very beginning. Now at the earliest stage, the most important question is does it have strategic value and a strategic fit and does mm-hmm. it have portfolio fit? Then we get to the question of is it wanted? So in the very early stage of development, when we're sort of formulating what these opportunities are, we're focused on the, those three questions. We're not really worried so much about option value and hmm. and so on because we haven't really we haven't passed those initial hurdles yet. Uh, but ultimately, you, you want to be asking all seven of those questions. And I mean, it's basically I uh, it's based on design thinking, isn't it? And sort of lean methodology. And I'm a big believer in putting that into human systems work. I call it because because it isn't tangible often and because humans aren't wired for uncertainty, are they? So, yeah. And it's interesting that you started with brand and the whole discussion around experience and what's become user experience in today's language and now sort of customer experience or employee experience. How much do you use those methods in think wrong in terms of, because I can see the cognitive process part of what's going on behind design thinking and the think wrong, but there's more than that, isn't there? It'd be interesting if you could, you know, just frame it for us in terms of how the design thinking, those three areas of desirability, viability, and and, uh, technical feasibility fit in there? Yeah. So by training, I'm a designer. So I I went to art school. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I studied communication design. And what I observed and, and came to understand and appreciate over time was that it didn't really matter what your design discipline was. You could be a fashion designer or a, a toy designer, an industrial mm-hmm. designer. You could be a civil engineer, uh, an architect, a communication di- designer in my case. And we were all being trained in basically the same methodology. And the, the methodology is what IDEO and the D school mm-hmm very nicely sort of packaged up as design thinking. Design thinking, yeah. Is this is the design problem-solving system that most designers are taught or historically have been taught. I, I, I can't speak with any great knowledge <laughs> at my age of what's currently being taught in design schools. <laughs> we were taught to focus on the user, yeah. right? Understand the need. We are taught to iterate and prototype and to discover what works through making mm. as opposed to simply through debate and PowerPoint sliding something to death. I think that design, it's interesting, design school has much more in common with the scientific disciplines than it does with the sort of business management disciplines that people might learn at university. So we didn't at the time call it these things in design school, but you're, you're taught to formulate a hypothesis. You're taught to design a test, which is mm-hmm. a prototype. Mm-hmm. You're taught to run the test, which is put the prototype into the real world and see how people engage with it, interact with it, learn from that, and then iterate your design, which is really running the test again, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's like redesigning your experiment and running the test again and mm-hmm. then saying, okay, so so when I talk about discovery-driven development, it's, it's the same thing as discovery-driven design, which is the same thing as how new medicines are created, yeah. right? <laughs> So design thinking, I think design design thinking has been really valuable as a framing of the design yes. methodology. And it's actually elevated. And I, I think IDEO and the D school for doing this, it's really elevated design into uh, the strategic realm. It's actually allowed for it to be part of a conversation about, about strategy in a way that typical designer wasn't re- equipped to do. Because most of us who went to design school were kind of I always say we're artists without courage. <laughs> we're, we're artists. We are kind of creative people. We got a lot of recognition and praise for being creative. That meant we like to draw or paint or make models or whatever it was. And we got a lot of attention and pats on the head for that. And then at some point we we're like, yeah, but I can't be a fine artist because they don't make any money. I don't, they seem to, you know, want to cut mm. their ears off and commit suicide. And so I got to pursue some way of actually making money with my creativity. And so you end up, many of us ended up in design, in a design program because of that. Right. <laughs> Maybe I'm confessing a lot here. <laughs> I think as a bunch of people, we're not necessarily, you know, super good at sitting back and articulating 
what's going on. A lot of what is driven in art is driven through intuition. Yeah, that's what's so great about it. Yeah. And, you know, our hearts and our guts and our, our, our eyes. And so then there's this, there is a set of us who started to try to frame and articulate what it, what that was all about and what we were actually trying to do. And I think that IDEO and, and, you know, the, the design thinking framing is really nice extension of creating a kind of logic and a theory around what we were doing Mm. all along. So that's a long way of saying, I, I think that anybody who's interested in being creative, anybody who's interested in using the, their creativity to drive positive change inside their organizations, inside their communities, inside their marketplaces, uh, for their clients and customers, ought to spend some time looking at design thinking and looking mm. at the skill set. There, there are many variations or many flavors of it these days. I think they're all useful. You know, I think it, it, I think it's all, I think it's all beneficial to to become good at observing. Right. So, like the yeah. ethnographic and anthropological observing what's going mm. on, looking at things from the perspective of others rather than from my perspective as an artist or creator. So mm. like being empathetic and, and understanding mm. what people are experiencing. But then what we've done with Think Wrong and what we do at Solve Next is we take a whole bunch of things that are really useful from business management around prioritization, around mm. portfolio management, around value creation. And we start to marry those things together and say, let's come up with a system that actually has both structure and rigor and discipline and creativity. And people yeah. think that's oxymoronic. Complimentary they actually, though, isn't it? They actually complement each other very well. Yeah. Mm. I think that's that's the power of, of the thing wrong is you bring both together. You've got the layered sort of business systems and then the human systems underneath. But but I think yeah. you know, the designer, the first thing a designer does is curious. And and that that's uh-huh. what really got me to design thinking is yeah, you know, you've got to get curious. Yeah. Before you start and that that means you have to step into somebody else's position and everything else you said around different perspectives. And I just think that's so powerful. But, you know, my question is, how do you put it into a culture as opposed to into a group of people for a day? <laughs> yeah. So there a couple of things that strike me from what you just said. I, two words that you use that are really positive triggers for me. They're things that make me excited or <laughs> human, right? It's human. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, we always try to come back to what does it mean to be human and how mm. do we communicate and engage with each other? And can we sort of bring can we bring it back to that? We're, we are just a bunch of human beings walking around on the surface of this planet where we are a lot more alike than we are different, even though we like to sort of focus on differences and get excited about those. And so connecting as human beings mm-hmm. and saying, wow, what's this shared experience that we're having is super important. The other word you used is curiosity. And, mm-hmm. and so a curious human, right, is yeah. great. That's, those are the, those are the Probably the two traits that I think are most important for being an effective designer or an effective uh, effective driver of change is that I'm both curious and I'm still connected to the idea of being human, which means that I'm empathetic, that I'm actually able to put myself in somebody else's shoes. I'm able to, not only am I able to do that, I want to do that. That's the curiosity of yeah. it, right? Which is, yeah. I want to I know what it's like to be that person in that situation. I want to feel that and experience that and know that so that it can influence the way that I'm thinking about this and solving. Because if if we recognize that our own lived experience, our own perspective is woefully insufficient <laughs> for us to design for others, right? It's just, yes, there's no yeah. way we can extrapolate up from ourselves to everybody else. So we really need to, we really need to have those traits in terms of culture and how do we transform a culture? <laughs> There are different things that can force that. Culture is an outcome of things, not an input. <laughs> That's where it gets confusing. I think in a lot of organizations, they say, we need to create a better culture. It's like, well, then there's a whole bunch of things you need to change because the culture that you have is an, is an outcome of a whole bunch of systems that are at play here yeah. uh, and behaviors and mindsets that are at play. So you have to think about what are the what is the desired culture and what are the things that are likely affecting that uh, mm. today? I'll use an example. I won't name them, but done some work with an organization in the past that does standardized testing. And in, you know, in the U.S., that's a big deal in terms of how people get admitted into university. They actually say out loud that we prepare people, we prepare students for college and careers. So we prepare them both to go to university and for their career. And if you look at the organization, what they actually do is they prepare people to take a test. 
Yes, for the predictable right. as opposed to the unpredictable. <laughs> yeah, and the metric that really matters most inside the organization is how many people have taken that test. Well, okay. you're not going to get to a culture of college and career caretakers no. and shepherds that make that possible until you change the metric, until you say, well, what we're going to do instead of measuring and valuing how many people took the test is we're going to, we're actually going to get paid. We're not even going to get paid for people taking tests. We're going to get paid for people getting placed in the college of their choice for which they have, for which they are a very good fit, right? So that, that they're actually, that they and their interests and their aptitudes uh, and their needs are a really great fit. So that's one way we're going to get paid. And then ultimately we're going to get paid when they get placed in a job <laughs> that is a really great fit for them and for mm-hmm. the people who are hiring them. Now, if they did that, then suddenly the organization would become completely oriented around co- college and career readiness, yeah. right? I boiled the culture down to that. So say it's, it's a sort of one driving metric that sort of mm-hmm. affects the culture in, a, in, a, in an outsized way. There are other things, but it connects back to that, what I was talking about in terms of the, the language and the frameworks and the tools and the people and the skills that we've put in place. Those are the things that, that create culture. Like how, how do we, if we were an anthropologist, how would we start to understand a culture? Well, what are their rituals, right? What are the, what, what were their belief systems? What tools did they use? What artifacts did they create, yeah, right? Yeah. Those would be the things we'd be looking at. So we, we kind of have to look at those things in our organization. If our organization has no system for innovation, no discipline, no rigor for innovation, no executive manager or team members who can speak articulately about how we do that work, Mm. what the tools are we use, the language that we use, the frameworks we use to organize our thinking and our action, you know, no, no set of toolkits or artifacts that we can point to and say, these are the things that come from that. If we don't have that, then Mm. we don't have a culture of innovation. Um, You have a culture of operation. And most organizations have a culture of operation. They can articulate what the rules are, what the laws are, what the compliance is, what the belief system is, what the values are, Mm. all the things that actually allow that organization to operate day to day, the the now version of the organization they can articulate, that very few organizations can articulate what are the, what's the belief system, what's the value set, what's the set of rules or laws or policies in place, what are the tools that are creating what's next and that govern what creates what's next. Yeah, they get to operational excellence, don't they? Yeah. And then I think yeah. that's a leadership development piece that's missing is understanding anthropology, behavioral science, yeah. emotional literacy, that everything that's coming to the fore in terms of experience today, the, you know. Absolutely. I mean, we're we're still living with the consequences of the breakthrough of the scientific management of business from the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, we met, we we basically measure processes and we make our decisions based on measures of processes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not going to do it if you're trying to if you're dealing with huge degrees of uncertainty and and managing multiple portfolios of mm-hmm. pain, problem, and solution hypotheses. It's just yeah. it doesn't it doesn't get you to the result. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and that's why McKinsey says that ninety four percent of CEOs are dissatisfied with the um, innovation going on in their mm-hmm. organization. Like six, mm. that means six percent are satisfied. Yeah, ninety-four percent are dissatisfied, and I think the six percent, probably half of them, just don't know. But they said they were satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> so in reality, it's it's. Mm. I think the uh, the the symptoms are pretty clear. You know that 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 this stuff is missing. It is, and I mean, if I come back to your analogy about trains, it's like a train crash waiting to happen, isn't it? And I think COVID has just accelerated the need mm. for that layer to be understood. At, at an executive level, at a team level, at a management level. I mean, what are you seeing around the effect of COVID? Are you seeing a different reaction to your methodology? Is there more appetite for it? Because building a hybrid workplace, we're, we're back into uncertainty, but yeah. we have to go there and yeah. everyone has to go there. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the short answer would be, we still don't know. (laughs) I can share what I've been observing. What what I've been seeing among our clients is, you know, some conversations that have been starting to happen across their organizations, which I think are really healthy. Mm. And those are, what was it that we loved? And what was it that we loathed about work prior to COVID? Mm. Let's think about how we were, how this place operated before COVID. What was it that we loved and what was it that we loathed about work during COVID? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Working from home. And what are we going to 
take forward with us into the future and what are we going to leave behind from both of those eras? We have this opportunity to reframe, reset the organization. Let's not waste that opportunity. So I see a lot of our clients are actually having those conversations. From a curiosity uh, point of view or from an operational excellence point of view? They're looking across the board, really. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I also think that, or that, you know, what we're finding, and I, you know, we're kind of a funny filter. So because people who reach out to us are ready to have a conversation, yes. they're yes. ready to do something, really. right? They and and they're either ready because they're very ambitious and driven. They see, hey, there's an opportunity for us to put big distance between us and everybody else right now. Mm. So we're gonna take advantage of that. Mm. Or there, there's a burning platform and they like, we, we've got to change. Like we will not survive if we don't change. So mm. they've got, they're, they're, they're being forced to do it. Right. Yeah. So, so we have both, we, we see both of those. I'm also seeing a willingness to try things and, and be experimental that hadn't existed before, because what COVID has, what this period of, of, of living with COVID and working through COVID has proven is there were a whole bunch of assumptions we made about what we could and couldn't do and how we had to work that just got thrown out the window. So what we were very certain about prior to COVID has been disproven. We have an example of that, a, a former client, he's, he runs a portfolio of businesses in, across Africa now. He has a business that was 4,000 people working in a very nice, large corporate office space. Mm-hmm where managers could kind of look over the shoulder of call center people yeah, and, uh, and make sure that they were doing their job properly, right? Yeah. So you had this kind of quality assurance that was quality assurance by walking around. And when COVID happened and, and everybody who was you know, in this call center who needed to be on the phone every single day speaking with customers, when they all had to do that from their homes instead of from this very expensive, nice corporate office space, they were very nervous about that. They thought, mm-hmm. wow, we're going to be in trouble because the you know, quality is going to drop to the floor because we're not there to kind of look over their shoulders. Well, it turns out that they actually had a, they had a little piece of software and they had an algorithm to help the call center folks actually deliver higher quality calls and stay on track that they never turned on because they just weren't confident in it. And they felt like they did a better job as human beings looking over their shoulders. So they turned it on. They let people go work from home. And what they saw was the quality of the calls, the customer satisfaction, and actually the customer response went through the roof. Yeah. Interesting. Without any managers looking over anybody's yeah. shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, okay, so just disproved a whole bunch of things. One, we made an assumption about how we needed to manage people. We made mm-hmm. an assumption about the kind of space we needed to operate in and the kind of overhead we needed to carry to do that. All those assumptions have been proven wrong. So now people get to work from home. They get to have much more autonomy. They don't have somebody looking over their shoulder mm. and they get to feel satisfied by producing much higher results for the organization and for their customers. So that's a story uh, of how a client discovering, well, we actually, it's okay to try some things that we, yeah. we felt. Yeah. And this, this gets back to one of the think wrong practices. You remember the idea of bet small, which is, yes. which is how do we run a small bet? How do we run a little experiment? How do we how do we try something without putting the whole organization at risk? And that gets back to that question of, is there affordable loss in the, in yes, the super yes. COVID just forced us to do a whole bunch of things radically all at once, but <laughs> you, you don't have to do everything radically all at once. You can say, I'm going to try this in this office, in this location, in this market with this uh, little small subgroup of customers at, or, or internal clients. And we're going to see how it goes. And we're yeah, going to learn from that. And we're going to advocate iterate. that, you know, yeah. start small. Yeah, exactly. And what's the most transformative thing personally for you from Think Wrong? So I think it validates something that that happened to me in my career, which is very liberating. And it's been been validated yet again. I sort of revealed or confessed a little bit of this origin story for myself as a you know, a, a little kid who liked to draw and got a lot of recognition and praise for, you know, mm. for that. I went to art school. I actually went to art school to be an illustrator. And there were two things that happened that convinced me not to do that. One was my all my working illustration professors seemed very unhappy. <laughs> it seemed like, like a bad profession. Like, I didn't have one, one illustration professor who was super excited about, about life and, and their work. 
And I thought, oh, that's that's not a good sign. The other was I looked around and like there are a whole bunch of people who could draw and paint a lot better than I could. They are like mm. really talented. You know, you go from being like the best in your school to being very average. <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, <laughs> hang on a second. <laughs> I I like to draw, I like to paint, but I'm not, I don't know that I'm that great at it. So I I moved into design. And and so designers are, as I said, they're, you know, I think that uh, many designers are these kinds of art wannabe artists who don't have the courage to be artists or the talent to be illustrators <laughs> um, who, oh. who, who go and design and then discover, hey, there's this really interesting thing of design, which is it, it has this sort of rational side to mm. it. Um, I learned early on that to be a really good designer, you actually want to be part of a multidisciplinary team. You want to be on a team of other kinds of experts. So as a user interface designer, being with a cognitive psychologist and a product manager and somebody who understands language or, you know, an icon designer or whatever, a mix of people was much better than just trying to do it all yourself. So I learned early on in my career when I was doing user interface design, the power of being on these diverse multidiscipline teams. The thing that we started doing with Think Wrong was we, we very quickly shifted from being a service business that was coming in and helping clients think wrong to a, an organization that was teaching clients to think wrong. And the sort of the transformative thing was the ability to scale the impact of the think wrong methodology through others and the difference that we could make. And I, you know, I was born in Berkeley. I'm still by, by nature, a kind of, you know, bleeding heart liberal who wants the world to be a better place. Mm. And I want the work that I do to help make a contribution to that. I think that if we're going to solve some of these really complex, challenging problems that face us, you know, everything from climate to the kind of political divisions that we mm -hmm. see in different countries and regions, religious divisions, all of these things, that it's going to take new approaches, it's going to take new solutions, and it's going to take people who are capable of creating that change. And so for me, this sort of journey from the little kid who sat and was quite content and happy to sit and draw to, well, I can use that creative impulse and, and skill set to do different kinds of work to, I can actually use it to create change to, I can unlock that ability that's inherent in all of us yeah. through these methods and, and actually scale impact by letting people rediscover that inner artist and that creative person that lurks inside of all of us and equipping them to do that in a way that is rational, that's rigorous, but also takes advantage of, of intuition and, and, and those other things that artists possess. So I think you've just learned that there's not any short answers when you're talking to me. <laughs> I take yeah, I was just, just reflecting out loud process, but I think that's, you know, the transformation is, mm. is scaling through others. And we're really right now are just starting another another iteration of that, which is we're launching something called the Global Partners Program. So we're actually we're training organizations to basically be little solve nexts in their region to do the think wrong facilitator training to run a program we call Leaders of Next, which is about equipping executives and managers to run innovation systems in their organizations to sell the software product that we sell to help support getting mm -hmm. that work done. And we're looking at how do we actually scale? How do we scale through scaling the system, right? How do we scale by, by equipping more organizations around the world to um, do this work in their markets? Because we're just one little organization, right? And I think with the, you know, the onset of a more interconnected world of ecosystems, you can scale that more easily. I love the fact that, you know, scaling systems because there is a systemic element to all types yeah. of change and all types of culture yeah. and all types of you know and often we do the bits without touching the system and therefore it doesn't become sustainable does it absolutely no that's absolutely I, I really like that bit yeah. but time is running i would like to ask you what your recommendations would be to or your final call to action for organizations and leaders wanting to think wrong if you like think differently yeah. apart from your methodology of course what what, what needs to be put in place before they start playing with the ideas that you bring? The first thing is a mindset that, you know, adopting a mindset that is willing to constantly try and learn. There's this saying that, that got popular in the innovation space about fail fast. Yeah. And we talk about that. It's like, yeah, people don't, we don't really like to fail. It's not really how we evolved by failing, well, right? So I'd much rather have people learn fast. 
right? And and the only failure in in my mind is if you try and it doesn't turn out as, as you expected and you fail to learn from that, then you fail. Yeah. If you don't take the unexpected outcome and embrace that, then then you really failed. So I think the first thing is adopting that mindset. I do think it's crucial for this to work in in organizations of really of any size and to be sustained over time. You need to start thinking of it as the system and what, whatever you do. So it doesn't have to be the way that we're framing it, but you know, mm-hmm. think about who are the people who should be doing this work. What are the processes and policies that are in place to govern how that work gets done? And what are the tools that we're putting in place to equip people with? And don't worry about building the, a massive system and implementing it all at once. Like, what is the minimum viable system? What's the minimum we can do that's going to start proving to us and others that that this is worth doing and, and we should be doing more? And we're going to learn how does it really work inside of our organization? Look for that. Really think about the there's the now organization and there's the next organization. And everything that exists in an organization pretty much is focused on now. Yeah. And so when I'm thinking about that system, it's the system for next. It's mm. what's going to get us there and how and what are the rules and uh, the, or laws that are going to govern how we do that, that are different than how we do what we do today. So we talk about these next rules versus the now rules and articulate those. And again, just art, maybe articulate two or three of them and, and try them out and see, see how they work. So it's be willing to try, be willing to learn and have a systems orientation. Like think, think about this, at least think about the people, the process and the platform, and then start to build that out. Start building it out somewhere that on something that matters to you, mm. that it's important, but it also can be done without having to extrapolate the system to everything all at once. <laughs> Finding a good place to start so you can start building your building your system out from a meaningful uh, beginning place, I think is really important. Yeah, and sort of living in the questions mm-hmm. and then you live in the answers to those questions, but this might not be the final answer and that's fine. I love your idea of coming from a creative future as opposed to coming from the here and now. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think that what you just said of you almost undoubtedly will be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so so be be okay with mm-hmm. that. That's why we, I talk about hypotheses. It's like it's the first hypothesis. And it's just it's what it's where we're going to start. We're finding a place to start and we're going to learn and we're going to become more certain as we go. No great innovation started from a place of certainty. No, right? clearly. It always yeah. starts from a place of great uncertainty. And then you get to a place where suddenly we're 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 certain and confident. But that, you know, that can take weeks, months, years. <laughs> so <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to leave our listeners with the only thing that's certain is that we're uncertain. Uh, Greg, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and experiences. Where can people find out more about SolveNext, Think Wrong, and what you do in general? Thank you, first of all, for inviting me into the conversation. It's lovely to have a chance to chat with you. So, you know, the typical places, our website, solvenext.com. If you Google Think Wrong, How to Conquer the Status Quo and Do Work That Matters, you'll end up finding the book which is in its third printing now. There's actually a Spanish version and the Arabic uh, translation. Wow, is in excellent. So that's that's fun. But really the website's the best place to go to get information. And I think hopefully it's a, at a point now where it sort of, it, it makes some sense <laughs> and, <laughs> and you can dive, there's, there's more content. There's some free, there are actually a number of free resources on the website, including what we call the Next Lab, which is our, the software that we create. There's a forever free version, which you can sign up and, and get the free free version of it and try that out. It has a it has a think wrong blitz. So my okay. first blitz is in it, right? So it's got a oh, standard cool. blitz. It has about thirty drills um, that you can you can try out. So I think that's a a nice you know tool for people to try and and apply within their own world. Excellent. And I would invite our listeners to go and look at those blitzes and those drills because they can be very powerful. I still remember them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, thank you, Greg. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please head over to iTunes and leave your feedback and your review. And it's bye from me for now. And I'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Mm